I think traditionally we have studied a lot about art and fashion history in the Western world. And it makes sense because there's a huge legacy there. I think it would be really amazing if people would try to also shift their gaze towards what's happening in other countries where these industries are emerging for the first time. I, I want there to be a slight shift and, uh, you know, and have both. And just have a balance in your curiosity and not only orient your curiosity towards what's obvious. Welcome to or welcome back to Fashion Carry Stories. My name is Lucas Silva Edwards. I am a career strategist and executive coach. My role is to help you design a successful life and career in one of the most glamorous industries on the planet, but also one of the most competitive. With more than 10 years of experience in the fashion and luxury industry here in Paris, France, and thanks to my large diversity of positions from retail, wholesale, product development, or fashion editor, I have acquired an insider view of what it takes to succeed in groups like LVMH, Caring or Chanel, but also in fashion tech startups or small designer brands. For that reason, I interview each week fashion professionals at different stages of their career in order to decode their best practices, tactics and strategies. My hope for you is that you will find in these conversations some inspiration and insight that will help you build your professional journey in the world of fashion and luxury. Before I introduce my guest today, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is the last one from season one. We will get back in a few weeks with more conversation and fashion career stories. Among the themes and topics covered in season two, we will have women in tech, sustainability, fashion history and journalism, but also personal finance, fashion exit strategies, and how to start your brand and show it at Paris Fashion Week. My conversation today is with Elena Barrage Larsen, founder of the eponym brand and currently working at Iris Van Erpen Creative Studio as a textile designer. Today is the International Women's Day. And I couldn't think about a better guest to celebrate women's creativity, resilience and grit than Elena. As you will hear in this conversation, Elena's background is rich, diverse and multicultural. Raised in Paris, France, from an Indian mother and a Norwegian father, she decided to study fashion design at Parcels in New York City and fashion management at Bocconi in Milan. However, what is the most impressive about Elena is that she launched in 2017, just after her bachelor, her own brand at the crossroad between a high fashion and textile art pieces, giving her the opportunity to be covered by Vogue and win several international prizes around the world. And then COVID-19 hit, sending all her plans and dreams through the window. That is the conversation we are going to have today. A conversation about resilience, self-discovery, and how to start again a brand post-COVID. We are also going to cover in this conversation the importance of tradition, heritage, and know-how, especially among women, and how to open up a point of view regarding creativity outside of the major fashion capitals. And with no further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Elena Barrage Larsen. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. This is the most efficient way to help us grow and entice people to listen to the show. So don't be shy, hit those five stars and show us your love in the comment section. Hi Elena, how are you? Hi, good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you for joining me uh, today. I'm really excited to, to have you uh, uh, in this podcast because we, we've met more or less one year and a half ago, something like that, when uh, you were studying at the Bocconi. Uh, but what's something it's really interesting about your journey is because you study at the Bocconi business, but in fact, you are a designer, you had your own brand. Uh, when I was looking at your profile, you, 
did internships here in Paris, in London, you studied in New York, but you also have worked in India, in uh, Dubai, I think, recently. And now you are in Amsterdam working for Iris Van Erpen. So I was like, I need to have her on the on the show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, really happy. You know, your profile is so so unique. And uh, and I, I wanted to kind of start with this conversation with a, an anecdote that you told me a few months ago. Uh, something about your family, the textile and Gandhi. Can you tell me a little bit about, about that? Because I thought it was really, really unique. Yes. So um, essentially, when I was completing my bachelor's degree at Parsons, in my final year in the Parsons Fashion Design BFA, you have to build a graduate collection. And so you have to choose a topic that's dear to your heart, but also, you know, a topic that allows you to express your aesthetic, your skill set, the things you've learned for the four years that you're there. And so I landed on the subject of Kadi. And why Kadi? Because it really encompassed my love of textiles as well as my family story, my personal story and the heritage of one of my countries. So I'm, I'm half Indian, half Norwegian. My mother's side is entirely Indian. And my grandparents were actually social workers and they were heavily involved in the Indian independence movement. And uh, they were actually married by Mahatma Gandhi. He arranged their marriage. And um, Kadi, how it comes into play, and not that many people actually know about this, but Kadi was the symbol of the Indian independence in some ways because it was the hand-spun cotton that Mahatma Gandhi wanted the entire country to learn how to spin within their homes, to boycott all of the cotton that was coming from the Manchester mills. So it was one of the first big products that could be boycotted coming in from England and reinforcing this, you know, um, craved independence that the Indian people had. So it was actually one of the only times in India's history, including today, that people from different religions, castes, socioeconomic backgrounds, everybody who was pro this movement was spinning Kadi at home. And it had the appearance of a, a white linen now it can be interpreted in different ways. It's more about the practice than it is like a material content that's specific. And so my mother growing up until she was 18, she was only allowed to wear Kadi. My grandfather, until he passed away at the age of 102, used to wake up at five o'clock in the morning every day until 102 and spin Kadi for one hour. Long gone, India's independent, but he still, you know, it, yeah. it's just something that you, it was something, you know, that everyone did. And it was, uh, so it was very beautiful that a textile became the symbol of such a huge political movement. And so I thought it was the perfect subject. So I landed on that subject and then I kind of shifted it. So I did a whole series of Kadis, but they were Kadi silks, they were hand painted. I worked on them, so they looked nothing like the white linen that you would associate, but it was still very much tied to my history. Amazing. Thanks for, for, for sharing that, uh, that, that, sto that story. And how did you decide to kind of become a, a designer? Because you, correct me if I'm wrong, you are raised here in, in Paris, so you have that uh, heritage, the Indian heritage, no Indian. Why did you decide to, to become a designer and how fashion entered your life uh, early on? So my mother is actually a fairly well-known Indian painter. And so I was exposed to the creative industries from a very young age. As a child, all of my evening activities were gallery openings, going to my mom's friend's studios. All of the weekends were basically museums and every extracurricular activity of mine involved some kind of pencil, brush, glue. There was no sports. Um, it's, arts have been very, very focused. Like it's been a central focus of how I was raised. Okay. And so, and also because my mom was someone who had made a, a career in, in this field, it didn't seem like something absurd. You know, it didn't seem yeah. like, oh, it's just a hobby. Oh, it's just a... because I had an example in my own household of someone who pursued something that's often considered trivial, but it actually had become a very successful business. And sometimes people forget that it can be a business. Yeah. So I think having that as an example, being introduced to that industry from a young age, I knew I wanted to be in the arts. And then it fine-tuned towards design because I liked the idea of art and functionality coming together. And I think that's really what design is. It's art, but as a product that you use, as a garment that you wear, as a home that you live in, it's, it's, that's what it is really, it's design, it's art and function. And then it went deeper into textiles because I realized that within design, what, I interest, what I'm interested in the most is surface and materiality and um, textural explorations. 
So that's kind of how it started. And then it slowly, slowly became more focused, but it's really due to my mom probably, yeah. Okay. And um, so in terms of uh, studies, you, how did you decide to, to go to New York and, and study over there? What kind of motivated your, your choice? Well, I, I grew up in Paris. I went to a very Parisian high school in a very Parisian neighborhood, but I was not in a Parisian household. My family is not French. Everyone went home to Aznavu. I went home to Bollywood. <laughs> it was a very different energy. Um, and frankly, I think that's something I was always craving because I didn't get a very, you know, my life in Paris was very French. And then I used to go, obviously, during my vacations to India, so on and so on. But I think I really wanted a, a more international environment. And that's when, when I applied to universities, everyone was like, oh, but you're applying for fashion. Like, you're in Paris. Why don't you stay in Paris? And I was like, yeah, but I want to see something else. And, and that's why I looked more into schools in London and in the United States. And, uh, and then, yeah, the best one I got into was Parsons. That's why I went. That's can make make sense. And if you can summarize more or less your experience over there, what kind of uh, what did you learn over there? What can what shape you in terms of designer today? Uh, I think Parsons has shaped me tremendously. It's interesting because I was in I was in fashion design BFA, and to be honest, I realized very quickly that what interests me about fashion is textiles. So uh, all of my projects, I cared very little about pattern making, silhouettes, sewing. I would spend hours on the surface, print, weave, knit, manipulations. And then I'd be like, oh my God, I need to turn this into a garment in two days. And so, but that being said, I'm very grateful that I had the fashion education. Even if now I, I do much more textile work. And sorry, I'm a bit going all over the place, but my point was, I think Parsons really, really taught me how to package a product. And um, yes, of course, it teaches you the skills. You know, I learned how to fashion illustrations and how to use Illustrator and Photoshop and all of that you learn, but you also learn how to speak about a concept, how to present a concept, how to uh, go from a concept to experimentation, to final swatches, to bigger product, to then how do you present the product? How do you shoot the product? How do you deliver a lookbook, line sheets? So then, you know, you learn how to do graphic design in a way because you have to present your work as well. And uh, so I would say for me, Parsons was really the journey of learning how to like start something from, from A to Z. And that was the beauty of our thesis is that by the end of thesis, I remember I had a full collection. I had three photo shoots, I had a video, I had seven books, I had an essay, I had a series of textiles, a series of jewelry. Like they really pushed you to do as much as you can and create a universe. And then to also know how to speak about your universe and make it appealing to other people. So I think that that's what I'm most grateful for. It really, really taught me how to package design. Yeah, super interesting. It's like, really, they, 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 they take the artistic and uh, inspiration that you guys have and really like give you like the, let's say the professional mindset and tools and habits to be able like to talk to the industry and to, exactly. as you said, like, package your, yourself or, or at least the, the, the project. So that's, uh, I imagine, super, super useful. And, um, and after the Parsons, what, what, what happened for you? I imagine you, you say you talked about several uh, internships. Uh, was it during Parsons? Was it uh, after? Where, where did you go? I started interning quite young. Uh, my first internship, I was 14. Uh, I was at Lina Ricci in Paris, very short, but I started very young and did little, little ones just to kind of understand what I liked, what I don't like. I think internships are very good to know what you don't like as well. Yeah. People forget. <laughs> but um, during Parsons, one internship I did that I really liked was I spent the summer in London working for America Transu in the embroidery mm -hmm. department. And then I also spent one semester during classes, two days a week, I used to intern at Takun. Mm -hmm. um, and then other than that, a lot of them were, yeah, during summers and breaks, but that, that was during classes. And because we're in New York, a lot of people would do that because you can take advantage of being in the city. So I did that. And then at the end of Parsons, we were presented with a lot of opportunities to participate in competitions. So Parsons, okay. obviously being such a, you know, it's a school that has tremendous industry contact. And so by the end of our senior year, you could apply to like 10 competitions, whether it's Parsons ex Hugo Boss, Parsons ex Swarovski, Parsons ex Neta Parsons ex... Donc, there were so many different things you could take a part in. 
And my goal is just apply to everything. I didn't win everything, but I figured, you know, <clears throat> even if you're a finalist and you reach to the stage where you meet all the panelists, yeah. you're meeting incredible judges. And, um, and sorry to, to, to interrupt, what is a competition? Can you explain a little bit? What does it mean, person and a brand? Sure. Um, it meant that, for example, we had one competition with, uh, with Hugo Boss. It was called Innovating Impact, and we had to be in teams. We had to apply as a team. There were five teams. Um, and they would give you a brief, you know, they would say, okay, so this is the concept, this is the issue, and then you have to kind of fix it and offer design solutions for it. So, you know, maybe the brief could be like, you have to come up with a collection for, uh, people with difficulty in mobility okay. and, you know, like easier ways. So I remember what we had done was, uh, shirt dresses actually for people with handicaps, um, for their arms and like a way to attach sleeves in a way that they wouldn't have to like put their arms into a shirt. So things like that, that was a very specific uh, yeah. competition, but essentially, usually there would be a brief. And then sometimes it was more general. It was just a presentation of your thesis. And then I guess they see if they, you know, find one project particularly interesting and that could result in either prize money or they would be like, okay, Swarovski will sponsor all your embroideries for your thesis, for example, or, you know, things like that. So the, the one that meant the most to me actually was the one that I won with two of my friends, which was the Donna Karen Urban Zen Fellowship. So that was really interesting. So Donna Karen, obviously a DKNY, but she, you know, she left DKNY in like 2010. So they're not connected anymore as much. And then she started her own company called Urban Zen. And that was a result of a trip that she took to Haiti um, after the earthquake that happened and uh, she realized the situation over there but she also noticed that there were a lot of uh, pockets of crafts around the island so she wanted to create something that would reboost the local craft economy so she built this uh, there's you know a partnership with the clinton foundation and she built it in partnership with parsons as well so there were many entities that were involved and the idea was to build products using the resources in haiti for urban zen and she had showrooms in new york and in los angeles now, Donna is an alumni of Parsons. So the way this also comes together is that then she started a program where every year she would select three Parsons seniors that she would then take with her to Haiti for several months. And we would be completely in charge of developing all the prototypes for the next Urban Zen collection. Oh, okay. And um, so two of my good friends and I, we actually received that award that year. And we went to Port-au-Prince for, for several months. And it was an incredible experience. And the team was very small, so we would report directly to Donna, you know, if I was working one day in the ceramic studio and I saw a shade of yellow, I would send it on WhatsApp to Donna and do you like it? So as a 21 year old, it was tremendous exposure. And also to work in Haiti was an interesting experience. Um, I had worked a lot with artisans in India, so it wasn't as jarring for me or like a culture shock. But what was very interesting was I didn't really do fashion. Same, so there I worked with ceramic metal, horn, leather, stone. And we did a lot of products for home products. So that also opened my eyes to, um, to something different. So that's, that's what I did right after I graduated um, in May, 2017. Okay, well, super, I, uh, super interesting. Just to double click on, on, the, on that experience. What did you, what would you say are the key, ex, let's say learning that you got from working with such a famous designer? Maybe in the way she thinks, or maybe the way she she works, or her inspiration. Is there anything that you you got from from her? I think she had a tremendous. Uh, she has tremendous passion, and you know she's she's not that young anymore, actually. And she she literally you feel like you're in the presence of uh, of someone who's who's just 25 and starting a new company for the first time, and the energy she approached everything with. You know, you wouldn't think it's someone who has literally been one of the grandparents of American fashion, along with, you know, yeah. Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. It's basically, they're the grand, they are those, exactly. they're icons. Yeah. And um, I feel like it's almost like she had that whole chapter. And now this Urban Zen was, you know, was her passion project, almost in a way. It's not even a project because it's, it's a big business. But um, I think if anything I learned was that your chapters of life, you know, you can tackle them with as much enthusiasm and there was no sort of, um, yeah, she just seemed as excited as if it was the first day and that she was designing every day and the enthusiasm. And of course she's a bit all over the place. She's, she's a very like, 
I, I really like, I, I love her, honestly. We had a very good relationship, but um, I love the way she looked at things. I love the way, you know, if something is not perfect, you know, it's not approved. So that shade of yellow, we need to get the right one. And, you know, she's there and she's, you know, in her late seventies, I think. And she's just, no, we, we need to get this right. Yeah. So the, the level of precision, the level of care, it's impressive. It's very impressive, I think. Okay. And so in terms of uh, chapter, what was the, the chapter after Parsons for you? Where did the chapter, you do... yeah, the chapter after. So after Parsons, I did this. And then I finished. I came back to New York in September 2017. I packed up my apartment and I left the U.S. And I came back to Paris. And it's, uh, you know, when you finish something big, especially after a high of thesis where you're presenting, presenting, presenting competition, it feels like uh, it's an interesting feeling. And a lot of my friends had applied to jobs. So they were starting yeah. like a corporate life every day, nine to five, you know, in different companies. And I had kind of opted for a different route. After speaking to many professors and getting a lot of feedback, I was told, no, you need to go try. So I was like, okay, I need to go try. So I get to Paris. I'm like, okay, how do I do this stuff? <laughs> and so then I decided to go the competition route again, which is I applied to new platforms that were not linked to Parsons. But, you know, designer incubators, creative talent, young talent platforms, like Vogue Italia, Vogue Talents has a lot of opportunities, for example. So I just went and applied to everything with my thesis, which I had. I was like, I have this huge project I spent a year on. It would be a shame for it to just... So I used that to then sort of continue that momentum after I graduated. Is that and the project, the CADI project you were talking about? Okay. Exactly. And um, luckily it got picked up by many platforms and the reception was really good. And one of them was an incubator in India called Lakme Fashion Week, which is actually, at, it's one of the, there's two main fashion weeks in India and it's, it's one of them. And actually now they've merged and they have a program where they sponsor five young designers every season for a, a show fully. Like it was, I got full show, press coverage, mentorship for three months. It was insane. But what it meant was that I was 22 and I had to basically, they were like, oh, you have a business. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I have a business. And then I had to figure out like, okay, I have, I have a business now. And I had to find new suppliers. I had to build a whole new collection because they accepted me on my thesis. Yeah. But I couldn't present my thesis again. Right. Yeah. So the next six months I was running around. I moved to Dubai where my parents were at the time. I figured that would make more sense because India is close by and production <laughs> and so on. And so that's what I did. And then after I did LACME, that just, it just kind of was like that. It was different competitions and I was very fortunate. A lot of my clients came to me in a very informal manner. I never really built e-commerce. I didn't push marketing. I spent no money in those things virtually. And it was word of mouth. It was events. Um, yeah. Amazing. But what is really interesting about um, what you said earlier, it's also your capacity to go ask for information. You said you were talking to your professors, to people in the industry. Uh, you don't hesitate to go see competitions uh, or at least apply to them. Um, where is that, I, like, let's say, skill to go talk to people come from? And, and, and how did you, they, did you develop that? Uh, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't think of that as a skill necessarily, but I, I guess it is. I know. But, um, hmm, I, I think I've always been very vocal about what I do and what I like to do. And I think because since I'm a kid, I've been the artsy one, I've always been mm -hmm. linked to my work. My work and me is one. And also yeah. I've been very fortunate to have my mother inside my house as my best mentor and guide. And she's, she's very tough. But I've, so that means I've been forced to always seek out feedback on what I do. And this is very different to a lot of my friends in art school who came from backgrounds where either their parents didn't necessarily understand why they're going to art school or they <laughs> understood it. Like you go do you, but like, I don't know anything about it. I, know. Like, I, respect yeah. it, I support you, but mm -hmm. you know, so, but I was in this habit of like, no, no, I need to talk about what I do and people get it. And I'm in a world where I'm exposed to people who can advise me. So. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's why, but, uh, I don't, I don't really know how to pinpoint it. I just think I really, I also felt actually, to be very honest in Ed Parsons, your, th your senior year, you were given two professors for your entire thesis. Yeah. Sometimes I felt some aspects of what I was doing was not understood fully, or sometimes I felt like the advice I was given was lacking in certain areas. And I thought 
for me to actually get proper feedback, I need to go to several teachers with several different specialties. Mm-hmm. And then I need to combine everything that's been said and then apply it to myself. I don't think one person, two people can be enough to advise a whole one year project. So that was my idea. I was like, I'm going to collect a lot of things. And that's also a really good way to meet a lot of people. When you Mm -hmm. ask a lot of questions and you're curious, and then you also, it makes people feel special as well, that you want their opinion. And so that's, that allowed me to build very strong relationships with teachers who were never my own. Some of my closest mentors at Parsons were never my professors. They were other people's professors, for example. That's amazing. You never know. Do you have in mind maybe one or two advice they, they, they give you that kind of like uh, stay with you? Oh, so many. Um, I had many teachers who, who told me that um, they were like, don't even try to get a job. You're not, you're not going to be an employee. It doesn't make sense. I was like, okay, yeah. cool. Thanks. Um, I guess they were not as wrong. I mean, I am an employee currently, but uh, it's true that most of my life I was not. <laughs> Um, and then other advice they've given me, I mean, there's so many things. Uh, one of the advice that I got a lot from many different people was to look beyond fashion. They all saw it. Everybody saw it. I was in fashion, but they were like, you're a textile person. You need to think a little bit bigger in terms of scale. And you need to think about interior design, you need to think about installations. You need to think about art as an artist. And in my brain, I had so much decided not to be an artist. My mother is an artist. We have a really good, famous artist in the household. I don't need to become another artist. I was set design, design, design. But then it's interesting because all of my clothes, I started painting them. So <laughs> I tried to not be a painter. And then I ended up painting clothes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but that was good advice, which was to, to think of yourself as a textile artist and not as a fashion designer. Yeah, that's a really good one, and it's true. It applies very, very much to your to your to your project. So coming back to where you were talking about, like the the fashion week in India, you started having uh, customers. How you said twenty two something like that. So how do you do? You were able to develop the the brand. What what happened after? Well, the thing is, it was just me, uh, and it remained a very. Um a one-woman show operation. Obviously, my mother is always a tremendous source of advice to me, but officially, it's me. And um, so what I did is I, I didn't really get into the whole cyclical spring, summer, this, that. I, I did series. As simple as I did series that were inspired by different concepts, different color stories. And then I would present those at different events. If I knew that I was invited for a showcase to New York, or if I was invited to a trade show in Milan by Vogue Talents or something, I would prepare a month in advance, something new. And that's really how I worked. I, if I knew something was coming up, I would just prepare a new series of work. And then things sold when they sold, but there was no linearity to it. You know, I have clients today, you know, recently, uh, you know, a few months ago who were still buying things I made five years ago. And then I have some things I made last year that still haven't sold. So it's it's really more like, a, exactly, again, it's more a collection of an artist rather than seasons, I yeah. think. Yeah, that's that's exactly that. You, that's where you are more in the art vibe, even though your product could be considered, yeah, uh, fashion. And, um, and so how did you, if you develop your brand, you have your customers, why did you choose to, to go back to, to school a few years uh, later? What, uh, what was the, the change? COVID. <laughs> if I'm being perfectly honest, a lot of my work and my sales and my growth was based on how much I was traveling around. I was moving around a lot. I was participating in a lot and people were taking a chance on me. So a lot of, um, a lot of very, very good people in the industry were taking a chance. And when COVID happened, I think there's different ways. You know, either you're a very established business with a strong online e-commerce system and people to back it up, and then you can ride the wave. Or you, you know, I, I just feel like in my case, it was, it was tougher because I wasn't doing my networking as much. I wasn't able to move around. All of a sudden, all the platforms, all the events, everything got shut down. Yeah. So my channels were not in place. And therefore, uh, I obviously kept, kept working on things, but I felt like after, I think two years of high of, 
having very, very good uh, audience at a very young age, it was tough. I have to be honest, it was tough, but I thought to myself, okay, how can I make better use of this time right now? I don't feel like the doors I'm knocking on are all opening. Mm. It feels very close. So then I decided that, you know, let me go back to school. Uh, I didn't want to go back to art school because I've done art school. And I think uh, what I was lacking, to be honest, was business because I was running a business like a complete artist. And that's fine, but I think it could be better. So I applied to Bocconi. I applied to a business master's. But what was interesting about it is it was focused towards design industries. So I was very clear. I wanted to go to a business school. Didn't want to do like fashion management at Parsons or like none of that. Wanted to go to like a legit business school, do a business degree. But this one was cool because all of my projects were with design companies. All of our, you know, we used to do a lot of visits in Italy to different companies, whether it's going to the Bottega factory and watching them do the weave, whether it's going to a silk mill in Como, whether it's, you know, we, we saw a lot. And it's a very interesting country for that as well, to see product, production and manufacturing in the design industry. So it was a very good experience to, for me, I think, to see how it works in Italy, to complement that with my knowledge of production in the East. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I can't say one is better than the other. There's always that thing of made in Europe is better. I, I don't agree, but I think okay. they can complement each other very well. That's a, a, amazing. And what, yeah. what did you, at the end, what did you kind of learn over there? Did you were able to find what you were looking for, for your, for your business? I think so. I think of course it's, it's very different going to school for a subject like business and then going to school for design. Yeah. It's more, um, you really feel like you're going to class, you know, Parsons, you really feel like you're doing your own thing. And it's, it's, it's different. There's more, there's a different level of passion to your daily task, but I'm very happy about it. I think it was very interesting. I really liked all the projects that we did for external companies. Uh, I think it was interesting for me to learn about marketing because uh, I was doing marketing in a way that was what seemed obvious to me, but then I had to learn about marketing in a more rigorous manner. So I, I appreciated that. And um, yeah, that, that I, I would say mostly the projects. I think, again, I think I really enjoyed delivering a 360 degree. So yeah. same at Bocconi, you know, we would have, for example, we had a competition for Bulgari. Mm -hmm. And the brief was how to rebrand the Serpenti, you know, the, the snake, the Serpenti collection to attract millennials. Um, because the buying power of millennials today is unparalleled. So now we're not just looking at the older customer anymore. And that was a really interesting project for two months. And, you know, we were doing, we were doing renders, like fictitious event planning, fictitious products, fictitious, um, that, that for me was one of my most interesting projects there was the Bulgari campaign. And actually we were one of the winners and we were invited to Rome. We presented to the CEO of Bulgari. So those, those experiences were very cool. Amazing. Yeah, you, you really feel like you are hands-on when you yeah. learn something to do. To, to. Um, what would you say are the maybe advice you would give to somebody who is a designer who wants to have their own brand? Is there anything that you can tell them now that you have experienced uh, so much? I think the number one thing is a lot of people want to start a fashion brand because they like fashion. Mm-hmm. I would say that's not a good enough reason. Okay. Uh, you have to really have something to say that's different. You have to have a product that you haven't seen before. Also, another thing, a lot of people start a fashion brand being like, okay, I really like this brand. And they basically redo that brand a little different. And that brand already exists. So whatever you do, it's never going to be that level. And actually, this goes back to a piece of advice I got from a professor at Parsons I forgot about earlier. When we were doing research often, we were not allowed to look at fashion for our mood boards, for our research. No fashion, no clothing, no past collections, any designer, no runway, nothing. We, our professor would be more happy if we showed up with a stone and like a vegetable. And we said, listen, I think it's really interesting the lines that are coming in this vegetable. I'm going to try to make the same lines into panels of organza and see what, what it looks like on a sleeve. And that would be like, oh, wow. Okay. You're taking inspiration from the world and it's not fashion to make fashion. It's so much more interesting when it's from other things. 
So I would say you can obviously you have to love fashion, but I almost think it's more interesting if you're just curious about so many more things. My advice would be you have to know that it's uh, it's an investment. I wouldn't go into making a brand if you don't feel like you have a little bit of a financial safety net. Okay. That's on the less uh, romanticized terms, yeah. but these are important things as well. Important, yeah. You need to know. Obviously, there's ways to do it. The way that I did it is I didn't spend much money and I would just try to sell a bit, go make more. But then also there's a limit to that. I know that now when I go back, I'll have to, you know, spend a lot more on marketing, on PR, on this and that. I didn't do that so much. So you have to be a little bit aware of money, aware of originality, like I said, and um, have a really good supply chain. You have to really don't underestimate that. You really need to know good factories, but you also need to be aware that they can change and know that production is really tough. I think a lot of designers don't realize how tough production is. It's, um, it's yeah. super, super interesting what you say about the, the production. How did you kind of create you, your own, net, let's say, network of produ production? But what was the, the criteria? What is a good uh, supply chain and what is a good production? It's tough also because when I started looking for production, I was 21. I was a 21 year old girl. So I was going to big factories in India and like talking to these like 60 year old men who had been running a four generation textile business that their great grandfather started. And they don't take you seriously. Yeah. So that's the other thing as a young designer to be taken seriously is very tough because you show up, you don't want to pay a lot. You usually have very small quantities which they don't like because they want high MOQs. So you automatically become an unimportant account. If you're an unimportant account, it means that they don't reply to you as fast. It means that your work always goes after everyone else. Also, if you're not living in the same city as your supplier, it means you can't go and check all the time what's happening in the studio or the office or whatever. So I had tremendous issues i had to change a lot of times and i'm lucky i'm half indian i speak hindi i have access to one of the best design manufacturing countries in the world mm. but it's still very tough so i don't know what to say because i still struggle i have met some wonderful wonderful suppliers and i've also had some horrible experiences and i'm not done i think i think it's gonna keep changing i think it's gonna keep changing but for me i think a good criteria would literally be as simple as are they honest? Do they reply to you? If they tell you something is done in two weeks, is it done in two weeks? It's, it's really about reliability. I, I find that I like it when they tell me, no, this will be done in a month. This can't be done now. A lot of people will always try to be like, oh yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And it never happens. So uh, for me, that's the main criteria is like, do you feel like they're honest with you? No, it's an excellent uh, point, uh, reliability, and, and it's simple to figure, try to figure out right yeah. away. To already give you a lot of info, and um, and so what happened after? Like you, you, you finished Bocconi, you did a Bulgari project. Yeah. Did you continue with your, your your brand? What was kind of the thought process after that uh, that master? I, you know, when I graduated uh, from my masters, as you do when every time you finish a degree, you're surrounded by a bunch of people. Everyone's applying to jobs. Everyone's talking about interviews. And that's the time around when we met. Exactly. And, um, I don't know. I, I was like, okay, I guess, you know, I took a bit of a pause and then I went to do my master's. So it felt like a, it felt like a scarier leap then than when I was 21, which is interesting. Okay. I think okay. as you get older, you need to force yourself more to get out of your comfort zone. And, um, but I knew that I was going to go back to that. I just had to push myself. And, but that being said, so everyone was applying to jobs. So I thought, okay, I will also send my portfolio to a bunch of places. And we'll see what happens. I didn't do it in a very intentional manner, <laughs> but I did. And I didn't hear back from anywhere. And I was like, okay, it's fine. The job I want is so niche textile design. There's like one person per company. There has to be an opening. If not, I'm never going to hear anything. So I didn't take it too personally, moved on. And then uh, I actually got into this program with Brunello Cucinelli in Italy. And that was very shortly after I graduated, it was about a month, a month and a half after I graduated. And uh, it was a very interesting concept. Basically, they wanted to invite 40 young people. It was half girls, half guys um, between the ages of like, 20 and 40 
to experience Bernardo Cucinelli's headquarters in Solomeo in Umbria. And, you know, they would cover our flights, our stay, our everything. And they, it was the most incredible experience I think I've had in our industry. You felt like you were invited on a red carpet to experience. And, and the, the company itself is incredible. I think by the end of it, I was so smitten. I was almost ready to move to the village and work for them because the ethos, the lifestyle, the factory environment, I mean, the two hours for lunch with the food in the cafeteria is made with the fresh vegetables from behind the factory. And, and then at 5 p.m. one day, someone's come to play pianos to relax the seamstresses. This is unheard of in our industry. Yeah. And so I think to go and see that, it almost felt completely delusional when you're used to seeing like fashion in like Paris, London, New York, and you're in this little hamlet and everyone's happy and everyone who worked there was so thrilled and wants to spend 20 years of their career there. And that, that was a very, I don't even know how to summarize it, but it was an incredible experience to just observe how the company worked. And so for three weeks, every day we had um, different departments come to us and explain to us how they work. So it was, it was literally just an overview of the yeah. brand. And um, so that was amazing. And then after that, actually, I started getting back into my own things fully. So I did a trip to New York to reconnect with my network from Parsons. I did a trip to India to reconnect with my suppliers. So that was May and June. And then actually in this whole time, at some point I was in Dubai and I was attending a Vogue business conference. There was a conference in a warehouse with some big speakers and from, uh, you know, different uh, big players in the Middle East in, in fashion. So whether it's like Farfetch Middle East or this or um, Harvey Nicks. And there was also my ex-dean of Parsons. So the person who was the dean of, of Parsons while I was there, and until recently, so until 2020, he was the dean. His name is Burak Chakmak. And he is now the CEO of the Fashion Commission for the Ministry of Culture in Saudi Arabia. Wow. So it makes sense that he was at that speech, you know, obviously talking about fashion in the region. And uh, I, I saw him and then he came down. He said, Helena, how have you been? I hadn't seen him in a really long time, but I had kept in contact. I had always updated him on my projects and what's going on. Because again, I was really trying to keep up my New York network, knowing that I'm really far from it. And he told me, he's like, you know, we're building this residency project. It's going to be a textile residency. It's a collaboration between the Fashion Commission and the Visual Arts Commission. And we're inviting seven young designers. Are you interested? I can, you know, put your name forward. It's on invitation only. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Amazing. So, <laughs> so then I went to Saudi Arabia for three months. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> my life is crazy. <laughs> so then I went to Saudi for three months. And it was an amazing experience. It was very tough in the beginning. Okay. And then by the end of it, I, I have to say I'm very, very grateful. And uh, I got to learn about an entirely new creative industry that is booming and that is still hidden, that is still, it's very different. And it's a very different atmosphere to Dubai as well. So I'm very grateful for that. And a week into arriving in Saudi, I actually got an email back from one of those portfolios I had sent seven months before. Seven months ago, okay. From Iris Van Herben. Amazing. Before you go to, 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 to Iris, what was the, the tough part moving to Saudi Arabia? What was the, you say it was tough at the beginning? It's interesting because I think the things that were tough for me were not the things people think were tough. So it was not about cultural adjustment or customs of how to behave or as a woman. <laughs> I that was fine because I was in an environment that was very, I was in a creative bubble. So all the women I were meeting literally had like short hair and piercings and tattoos and like they're all poets and like stand-up comedians and, you know, video artists. And like it was, I was in a very hipster Saudi. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it wasn't that. For me, I think it was the, the logistics were a bit rough when I got there because I think that the program was still being set up and it was very new. And so whether it was our accommodation or even... Honestly, there's quite a strong language barrier in Saudi uh, in the day-to-day, -day, like in on street level, like, you know, just transportation, this, that. It's not like Dubai. So that was tough. Getting basic things sorted was tough. 
but people wise i i have to say i was i was blown away i met wonderful people the saudi community embraced me and my work in a way i would have never expected i used to message people on instagram that i never met i would just tell them i'm on this project can i talk to you they would come to my studio with lunch we'd sit for four hours then they would introduce me to their sister their friend their cousin their brother it, that's just how it worked and um so actually in saudi in a sense, it was kind of my post-COVID creative re-energizer because I ended up, uh, for my business, it was fantastic as well. The, the sales I experienced there, um, the word of mouth I experienced there. By the end of my experience, I would go to a, a big event, for example, and I would spot like 10 women wearing my clothes. Different oh. clients. <laughs> and so it was cool, you know, you'd have people come up to me and be like, hey, are you the new the designer in, in Riyadh everyone's talking about? And I was like, no, me, what? Yeah. She's like, no, the one who does the painted clothes. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, was, it was very nice. But uh, so when I went to Saudi, before going, I did a collection of 10 abayas. So, you know, it's the, it's the garment that they wear over outfits. I did 10 abayas and I said, let's see if I sell them Just as a test. And then I brought them and then I sold them and I sold many more and there were many orders. And so touch wood, it was, it was very good. And I think um, it gave me the confidence again after COVID to really look at my work in a different way. Yeah, super interesting between that moment at uh, Brunello Cuccinelli when you discover that, that bubble and that way that there is other ways to do business and then going at the other side of the, the, the world entirely other culture and discovered that over there also they do business in another way that is still really, really new. And uh, yeah, it's probably like a, a fresh air, let's say creative fresh air in your, for you at, the, at, the, at that moment. Exactly. Yeah, really. Yeah. And, and what was the project that you were working on when you were in, in Saudi? It was very open. So it was the first time that I did an artist residency. So actually, I don't think I realized until I got there how open an artist residency is. The concept is basically that you're invited and someone gives you a studio, they give you an apartment, mm -hmm. they give you a, a production budget, and they sort of finance your day-to-day. -day. And um, so it was extremely open-ended. I was very intent on developing something that had a connection to Saudi. I didn't want to just sit in Saudi in a studio and do what I do in India. Mm -hmm because I, I mean, it doesn't make sense. I also don't think it's smart to look for that same level of, let's say, embroidery craftsmanship because it wasn't necessarily there, right? And even a lot of the embroiders in Saudi were from India and Pakistan. Okay. So I quickly realized that I didn't want to try to replicate those things there necessarily. I was like, let me find out what's really good here and what's really well done here. And um, I think in Saudi, a lot of the crafts are... Um, outside of the cities so it was a bit I mean, that was another struggle as well i had to really dig and contact crafts councils and organizations and this and that you know can i meet one artisan can, and at some point i gave up and i just I, I went to a souk one day for example i worked with three people one of them i met at the souk so basically in the traditional saudi men's gear there is a white fabric that they place on their head and it's held up by a black ring and that ring is called an igal. And the way that they make that, it's a, it's, it's like a long thing like this. It's got two metal hooks and it has threads of um, like rope this way. And then there's a rope that goes this way. And it just turns, 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 turns. And it becomes a stiff thing. And then they coil it and they place it into a circle. So I'm walking and I see this guy doing this. And I was thinking, um, what if we do that? with different things, like with not yeah. with black rope, you know? So I went up to him, Google Translate with my phone and uh, super lovely guy. And again, four generation business. For four generations, they've been making this black ring. And okay. I showed up and I was like, hey, I'm gonna come in one week and I'm gonna bring metal wire, plastic wire, paper threads. I'm gonna bring painted fabrics. And he was like, what? Eh? And I said, Trust me. As long as you tell me that you can give me one hour of your time and we can like play together, I'll come. So I came with a bag full of stuff and, um, and we started making them together and he was like, what? and then he would have so much fun and yeah. we had so much fun. And then we made, we made 60 
long sticks. Each one was different and had so many materials to them. Uh, I'll show you actually, I have some photos. And I also, what I did is I took some of my hand-painted material that I had made a while ago and I ripped it into shreds and then I rolled that into it as well. So it, it almost, it was almost therapeutic. And so that was one piece. I did a big textile installation with those. That was one piece. Second person I worked with was, uh, he owned a steel factory and we developed large metal works where I wanted to use the same techniques that I use on fabric, but on metal. So instead of drawing with a pencil, I was like making a line with like a welding machine. Instead of creating like a gradient with like brushes or water sprays and sponges and all that, I was using a grinding machine to go from matte to, uh, matte to like shiny, for example. Mm-hmm. And so we created two big metal pieces. And then my third piece was actually a work with an 80-year-old beater and um, she's been beading since she was 15 years old. And it's a very beautiful old Saudi technique that women used to do, which is it's, it's metal beads. They actually used to melt lead. And then with their teeth, they used to make these beads. It's very dangerous because then you get cancer. So now they don't make them with lead anymore. Yeah. But, um, and then they used to embroider huge surfaces with these geometric like patches of beads. But there was so much beading that you could almost not see the base fabric. And so with her, what we did is we used my painted fabric as a base. Again, some of my old pieces. So it's interesting. I took some of my old work and just broke it apart and found it, made new stuff. And um, for for the designs of the outlines of the embroidery, I did a photo series of architecture in Riyadh. And I was looking at how the buildings like intersect with the, with the sky. And because the architecture is also very like, I don't know, it, it's all over the place. So it was an interesting study of that. And I used those lines on my fabric and then she would fill in those lines with the beading. Mm. And so we did two pieces together. So those are the three collaborations I did while I was there. Amazing. And was it um, kind of the first time that you were able like to dig into uh, the craftsmanship of a country and play with it? Because you have done it with India, but is there any other moment where you, you were able to do that? Or that was kind of one of the first? I, I was able to do that in Haiti, yeah. Yeah, in Haiti as well. But in Haiti it was different because I was, mm. I was given a network. So yeah. I was told, you're going to go today to the ceramic. Tomorrow you're going to go to the... Mm-hmm. Saudi was much more like, hey, here you are. Figure it out. It was different. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. I... Mm, Again, if you think about the, the kind of somebody who is in design, um, what would be kind of the advice regarding the thought process when you arrive maybe at those type of residencies or, or if they want kind of to get even themselves in that, in that mood? Well, what kind of the, you know, the advice or the, the do's and don'ts that you can recommend? I think if it's in a different culture, uh, definitely try to understand what is the craft heritage of that country? So first, my first month there, I was just studying, I was literally just studying the techniques of what the Bedouin women they used to wear in different regions. Mm-hmm. And that's also where I saw that they had a lot of traditional clothing that had a lot of metal on it, whether it was coins, whether it was embroidery. And I think it's interesting. So if you get some, get to a place, try to understand what do they do well historically and then try to understand what is your aesthetic, which you should probably already understand, and then see how can you apply this technique to your aesthetic, I guess. I mean, that, that was the simplest thing to me. It's like, mm. how can I use this technique? And it doesn't look like a traditional Saudi piece. It looks like my work with a Saudi technique. Mm. Um, that's one thing. I think in general, you have to be very open-minded. You have to be very curious. But I think that applies to anything that has to do with travel and moving to a new place. Um, I think it it helps to give yourself some deadlines as well, because I think artist residencies, you can very much remain in this like floating conceptual bubble for three months, basically. But it's important to be like, okay, I have three weeks to, to, to think, and then I have three weeks to look for how to make, and then I have three weeks to make, for example. Yeah. And then I have two weeks to showcase or, I think it's good to project manage yourself a bit. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, no, the, the, this last advice, it's a, it's a good one. In any creative project, it's good sometimes to put some constraint just to at least help you. Yeah, it's a, we forget about that, but that's also what's helped the process, yeah, those, yeah. those constraints. And, uh, and so you were talking about like that. In one week when you arrive uh, over there, you receive an email from, uh, from Iris. So tell us a little bit uh, about it. So uh, you are over there today, over, over there, right? Yes, yes, I am. I'm in Amsterdam right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I arrived to Saudi and I think it was, it was, yeah, end of September, September, mid-September, I get, uh, I got an email saying, you know, are you available for a call tomorrow? And I was like, wait, did I apply? <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember that I, had, I had sent this and um, I don't really tell anyone. I remember I usually, I'm very communicative. I tell everyone what I'm doing. This I was like, I'm just going to do the call. Um, so I did the call um, and then the day after she, they called me back and they were like, okay, we, your, the job is yours. And I was like, okay, that sounds fast. Like, but I'm, I'm on a contract, you know, with the Saudi government till November 18th. So they wanted me to start that week. Yeah. So end of September. And uh, the role was in Couture Textile Technique Development. So it's more technical. It's more, you know, you receive the designs and then you have to source the materials and get it done and understand how to best execute, basically. Okay. Um, I have been in complete awe of Iris Van Herpen since I was, since ever since I can remember. As a textile person, I think in fashion, there are very few artists. Yeah. Like true artists. And she really is one of them. Yeah. I'm not saying that because I work there. No. <laughs> but um, I, I agree with, with you. Exactly. It's hard to imagine somebody else uh, on that list, so I, on the I top of that. that list. Yeah, it's hard. I knew that. I was like, if I have to go and I have to do this. Like, there's no way. And um, so I, I found a way. I, I negotiated with them. I said, I really wanted to not lose my Saudi opportunity because I also thought, you know, this is very different. I've signed up for this. I want to complete it. And then I didn't want to lose this opportunity. So there was a week or two where I was trying to negotiate back and forth. And then it worked out and um, they agreed for me to start literally, I think, 36 hours after I finished Saudi. So I moved from Saudi to Amsterdam directly. I literally had my last showcase in Riyadh, packed at night, flew the next day, came here Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, I started work. Wow. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that negotiation part? What, what, what did you say or how that did it work? Because September, November, it's two months. That's a, a, a lot. Do you, do you know what make them change their, their mind? Well, I think that they were fortunate that they had, um, because the person that I replaced, she had to leave end of September. So the issue was more that they wouldn't have anyone in the role. But then they had someone in the team that um, they were comfortable uh, shifting. And so she basically took over. And, um, and then she's actually remained at the company. And so now we both together kind of have the certain aspects of the role of the person who's left. But essentially, I think it was just a question of them finding a way to have someone uh, to do that role in those two months. Yeah, makes sense. And, and they have someone internally that they okay. You know, promote. So. Okay. And in terms of thought process, because when you have that opportunity, uh, at the same time, you have Saudi Arab. You could think, okay, no, maybe Iris is my dream. I'm just going to give up Saudi Arabia. Yeah. How yeah. did you manage to think about that, the pros and cons? I did not want to give up Saudi because I had, uh, I, I don't know, I decided in my head that this was going to be my big comeback, Saudi. I don't know. Okay. It was like I had decided it. And I felt like I was not, I had something to do there. I don't know how to explain yeah. it, but I was like, I can't leave this place mm -hmm. until this experience becomes what I had imagined it to be. Mm. And it wasn't fully, of course, but I wasn't, I didn't want to give up on it. And also bear in mind, I was invited to this program by Barack, who was my dean for four years. So I felt a certain sense of responsibility towards, mm. you know, I signed up for this thing and there's very few of us in the program. It doesn't look. Yeah, it's on many, many levels, it, it didn't make sense to leave. Yeah. Um, and then with Iris, I just, I don't know, I just held faith. I was like, it's okay, it's not going to go anywhere. It can't. I don't know. I, I, I can't even explain to you my headspace. At the time, I was just like, no, both have to happen. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it is interesting because they just show also your, your values, your, your loyalty, your integrity about the choice and the commitment. And it's true in those, we all have those moments and, and it's hard and sometimes we can lose opportunities because we stay, you know, strong and, uh, and faith and loyal to our values. And uh, so that's why I was wondering uh, about that. And as you say, just like you knew that you had something to do over there and you just, it was a leap of faith in, in, in some and there's ways. One thing I'll add. I'm also someone who's not, um, exactly. All of my friends from Europe, Parsons, oh my God, you Van Herpen. And yes, oh my God, indeed. Yeah. But I never, cons I, I find all experiences to have a lot of value. I'm not someone who will immediately be like, oh, it's a Dior, it's a Chanel. It's a, yeah. It has to be more interesting than this experience in this country, mm. which, you know, is perceived by some as problematic or this or that. I, I didn't see it as having such drastic different values. I could see that they both had a lot of value in really different ways. And again, it goes back to just everybody always considering that, you know, something in Europe or North America is of more value than an experience. And I can tell you tomorrow, if someone told me to go to Uzbekistan to study textiles for three months, and I had another job opportunity, perhaps for a big house, I would be the kind of person who is very capable of going to Uzbekistan instead. Yeah. And I think this goes back to my mother because for a PhD, she had two options. She was offered a PhD to Cambridge University and she chose to go and study Indian tribal art and live in villages for two years. And she said no to Cambridge and she stayed in India where she's from and lived with tribals and interviewed tribal women in jails and developed a series of art on that. And so I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but I'm guessing it comes from this. Yeah, there is a, a DNA thing oh, mixed in, in it. Now, amazing. And I, I think it's an excellent point that uh, all experience could be equal if we want to see that way and if we want to see like the opportunities in it. And sometimes it's like the outside world that put that pressure, that point of view on it. But at the end of the day, we are the one who going to make like the experience valuable or not. I think it's an excellent uh, uh, point. I know you are uh, short in, in time, so I want to be respectful uh, of it. Is there anything else that we haven't talked that you believe that uh, could be interesting for the next generation or even that you want to, to, to express before we, we wrap up? I think we covered a lot, but uh, I really want to insist on this thing of, I think traditionally we have studied a lot about art and fashion history in the Western world. And it makes sense because there's a huge legacy there. I think it would be really amazing if people would try to also shift their gaze towards what's happening in other countries where these industries are emerging for the first time. And that's what I thought was interesting with Saudi is that the best gallery in Saudi is not 300 years old. It's five years old. Yeah. And that some people can call that amateur. Some people can call that whatever, but it's interesting to me. And mm -hmm. I think, I don't know, I, I want, I, I want there to be a slight shift and, uh, you know, and have both and just have a balance in your curiosity and not only orient your curiosity towards what's obvious. That's it. I love it. Great. Uh conclusion and uh, it's a good uh, call for for the industry and the, and the people who are gonna listen this episode like open your <laughs> eyes to what's happening over there make that effort go out of your comfort zone it's true we are sometimes too center you know western uh, culture no it can be nigeria it can be senegal mm? i mean there's but they just did a huge show in senegal right for for dior or chanel or i don't know my point in is egypt exactly yeah like there is a world beyond London, Paris, Milan, and New York. Mm. <laughs> That's, <awesome. laughs> That's it. Yeah. No, amazing. I can't wait to see what uh, what's gonna your journey gonna go and what you do with with your brand and when you you, you start again. So let's stay in touch and thank you again for all your your time and and support. What a world tour we did. I believe. That this conversation was probably one of the richest in terms of diversity of countries, experiences and insight. Personally, it was a good reminder that in this globalized industry like ours, we are pretty narrow-minded sometimes. So what are the key learnings from this conversation? 
one. No matter what is your project, if it's building your career or starting a brand, having done a personal work on yourself and where you come from will give you a more in-depth sense of purpose. Two, the uncertainty of a world due to climate change or economical crisis make resilience and grit essential qualities to develop in order to stay on course. However, keep in mind that those skills are forged on the field. This is why I encourage you to stick in a comfortable and scary situation in order to practice those skills. 3. Creating a brand can take years and is not always a straight line. So look for mentors and guidance all along your journey and never assume that there is only one way to succeed. If you are still hearing this, thank you so much for tuning in. I know how much your time is valuable. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. This is the most efficient way to help us grow and entice people to listen to the show. If you have any questions, comments or requests, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. In the next couple of weeks, I will experiment with different type of format before launching season 2. So please let me know what you think in the comment section. Until next time, I wish you a wonderful day.